Good morning. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 10 this morning. If you'd like to turn there, I didn't give you time to say good morning back, so good morning. A little quick on the trigger there, wasn't I? Daniel chapter 10 is what we're looking at today, and we're looking forward to diving into God's Word with you in just a moment. I'm going to kind of frame what we're talking about today by sharing a few brief remarks. I was reading in World Magazine's May 21st edition, so just yesterday, and I read a little quip from Candace Ogers, psychologist. She said, by many markers, kids are doing fantastic and thriving, but there are really important trends in anxiety, depression, and taking of lives that stops us in our tracks. She's talking about mental illness amongst American teens. Also, in the same edition, I was reading and has one of these little brief reports that's titled, Farewell to the Elder, and it says, the world's oldest person, Kane Tanaka, died April 19th in Japan at the age of 119. Tanaka was born on January 2nd, 1903, according to a statement released by the country's Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare. Tweeting about her death, Guinness World Records said she became the oldest living person in January 2019 at the age of 116 years and 28 days. She is also the second oldest person ever recorded behind only Jean Calment in the modern era, who lived to be the age 122. Born in 1903, Tanaka married a rice shop owner at the age of 19 and worked in the family store until she was 103. She twice survived cancer and lived through a multitude of historical events, including two world wars, 1918 Spanish flu, and everything else you can think of through the rest of the century. So quite a lady there. I was thinking about today's sermon and, and that those pieces from World Magazine connected with a certain theme today, and we're just, just narrowing right down to it, but I wanted to frame it as best as I can. Uh, we want to live to be aged, I think, but we can't imagine living with ourselves to be aged. I think we have this kind of problem. You know, we, 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 want, to be, we want to live to be aged, but many of us can't imagine living with ourselves to be aged, hence the two different aspects that I read. I read about the, the, this elderly person. There's this part of us, I think, that thinks, wow, that's amazing. I'd like to live to be very old. But then there's this anxiety that seems to be creeping in um, that, that is troubling. And I think we all know it. We can't quite put our finger on the source and the solution for it. Michael Reeves wrote a little book, and I mean little, I mean little, if you can see. It's not very big. It's real small. And he grappled with one central question in the book. It's central to what we're grappling with today. He said, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? I'm just going to read to you straight away from a couple of pages in this little bitty book. He talks about today's culture of fear. He says, but before we dive into the good news the Bible has about our fears and our fear of God, it's worth noticing how anxious our culture has become. Seeing where our society now is can help us understand why we have a problem with fear and why the fear of God is just the medicine we need. These days, it seems everyone is talking about a culture of fear. From Twitter to television, we fret about global events, extreme weather, political turmoil. Our private lives are filled with still more sources of anxiety. Take our diet, for example. If you choose the full-fat version on the menu, you're heading for a heart attack. Yet we keep discovering that the low-calorie alternative is actually harmful in some other way. And so a low-grade fear starts to set in with breakfast, Reeves writes. Or think of the paranoia surrounding parenting today. The valid but usually overblown fear of a kidnapper lurking online or outside every school has helped fuel the rise of helicopter parenting and children more and more fenced in to keep them safe. As a whole, we are an increasingly anxious and uncertain culture. And there is an extraordinary paradox, for we live more safely than ever before in many ways. Though we are safer than most any society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. Reeves writes, protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. How can this be? How can this be? Quite simply, our culture has lost God as the proper object of fear. Our culture has lost God as the proper object of fear. 
And so we seem to, to envision fear as a holy, negative concept. And Reeves writes about, instead of jettisoning fear, reappropriating being afraid in a God-centered direction and seeing what the result might be from that. What, what he is arguing in this little read that I think is a very biblical concept is that all fear is not the same and that the greatest medicine for our fear, not making any statements about other medicines, this is not a biblical counseling session, I'm simply saying the greatest medicine for our fears is redirecting our fatigued fear toward the God that is absolutely worthy of being afraid of, right? So we want to look at God and all of his godness. And you might be thinking today, well, how, how in the world does it help me with my fear to be afraid of something, someone else? How does that help? And the irony, I think, is rooted in our text today. Because when we are weak, then he is made visible as strong for us. It's not in our strength, it's not in our pomposity and our pride that we learn more of God's godness now, is it? We learn again and again in the text that we feel most touched by him, we feel most close to him when we recognize our rightful need of him. This is how we learn to live with ourselves, that we might actually aspire to live to a ripe old age and pass along, as the scripture says, the faith to the next generation. But that is a worthy retirement goal, isn't it? To pass the faith on to the next generation. If we have years, that's what we should want. But we know Jesus did more in 30 than Hezekiah did many more. Let's give to the Lord our aims. I've decided to spend one more week in Daniel 10, you may have noticed. And then next week, Pastor Kurt will preach on the very last verses of Haggai 2. I plan to finish Daniel 11 and 12, the first weeks of June, and then if the Lord allows it, Father's Day will embark on the book of Exodus. That so gives you some idea of where we're going. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 10, is where I will preach from through the end of the chapter, but I need to read the first nine verses for context, even though we preached those verses more fully last week, and I would refer you back to that sermon. We're going to be listening into a conversation between a prophet and a heavenly messenger. And we're going to be looking to see what we can learn about this subject matter by listening into this conversation between the prophet Daniel and this heavenly messenger that I believe to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We learn about God and his godness, and we learn what it's like to get closer to a holy God through this, this, this conversation, this dialogue that we're going to see in Daniel 10, 10 to 21. And so uh, let us now take to this text to see God not, not, as a, not as a God that simply comforts us or a God that, 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 that simply contends for us or even simply commissions us, but a God that does many things in our lives at once because he knows what we need more than we do. So, so it's not just that God's comforting us right where we are, not moving. It's not just that he's contending for us in the heavenlies, of course, which he is. It's that God has a vision to not only comfort you, but contend for you, not only contend for you, but comfort you, and also to commission you for his work. So really those will frame our three points when we get to them. That is a God that comforts, commissions, and contends for you. Let's hear the, the first nine verses for context, and then I'll pause for a moment, and we'll read the rest of the chapter that will be preached. So Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is two years after the previous vision, which was in verse 9. And here we have chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. 
So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now that's the background. And do take that to be a, an appearance from heaven there. And so we see in verse 10, then, this dialogue within this apocalyptic vision. So listen for it. Verses 10 to 14, and then verses 15 to 17, and then verses 18 to 21 to frame our comforting, commissioning, and contending. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is, hap- what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him and stood before him, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Now verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these except Michael, your prince. And for context, the first verse and a half of chapter 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will show you the truth. May God bless the reading of his word to minister grace and all of you who hear. So, God comforts, commissions, and contends for his people. Let's just take verses 10 to 14 to consider how a healthy fear of God can lead you to see God and his godness in such a way as to actually be a comfort to you. It's going to sound a little counterintuitive. But he does this, he comforts us, according to this text in verses 10 through 14, by coming to us, by hearing us, and by making time for us. So just, just look again at verses 10 through 14. If you have your Bible open, and if not, perhaps we can throw it back up behind me. But it says, And behold, a hand touched me. Three times touched me is going to be mentioned in this text. And within any discourse, you want to watch for repetitive language. That's helpful. You also want to watch for shifts in speakers from, in this case, the heavenly messenger to Daniel and back. And so here we have, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So frightful, right? More fear, not less. And the heavenly messenger said to Daniel, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Love and fear together in the economy of God. Love and fear together. If we talk about the love of God and we try to extradite the fear of God, we miss what love is in terms of agape love and vice versa. Our phobias are taking the day because we don't understand God so loved. We must more fully understand God so loved. In fact, if you just pause there for a second and meditate with me, you probably don't even have to turn anywhere to see this in your mind's eye. For God so loved the world, right, that he what? He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
But the very next verse really builds on that theme. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, that is the son. So what can we derive from that classic, famous, and favorite passage of Scripture from the Gospel of John? Is that Christ was sent, that he was sent for me and for you. So I am able now to look at Daniel 10 and understand that in the fullness of time, like the New Testament and the fuller revelation shows us now delivered, I can understand that Christ has been sent for us. So whatever heavenly messenger is on the scene in 536 B.C. with the prophet Daniel that's being shared about in the text that we're reading from today, from some 2,500 years ago, whatever heavenly messenger is on the scene is in service to the main point of human history, which is God sent his son. We call him Jesus. And when I look at this text and I consider what it's like for God to reveal himself more fully to one of his people, in this case, a prophet like Daniel, what I am encouraged by and struck by is how much simultaneously the man of God is loved and how absolutely petrified he is. And now his hands are old. He's pushing 90 years old. We talked about the elderly to start this sermon, didn't we? Daniel's getting up there. His knees are weak. They're wobbly. In fact, he's coming out of a coma-like state to now be encouraged to stand before this heavenly messenger. Another reason why I think it's a pre-incarnate vision of Christ is it's just to talk of him as Lord and to be, I mean, angelic appearance is one thing, but this is a flattening thing for Daniel, and it's late in the revelation given to Daniel. So I, some reasons why I see it that way, not sure that I'm right, but I, I'm going to have to preach it some way, so I say it that way. Rodney Stortz said it like this. He said, maybe Daniel was mourning because he could not be in Jerusalem for the first Passover celebration. Perhaps he was grieving because the foundation of the temple had not yet been started, even though the people had already been there for almost a year. According to Ezra 3, they did not get started the next month, or they did rather get started the next month. Perhaps he was mourning because only 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Daniel was, as I said, 90 years old. He was too feeble to return. Maybe he was under administrative responsibility to stay governing where he was for the Persian Empire. But whatever the case may be, he's bothered by the visions that he has seen, by the future that he already understands, let alone what he does not. And he's bothered by the lack of perceived progress amongst God's people when they know where to go and what to do, and they seem to be either not going or not doing. Though he mourned until the 24th day, though the Passover and the following Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted from the 14th of the month until the 21st day of the month, and on the 24th day he looked up and saw a man standing there. That's where we look at the text today. Crosswalk editors online describe a Christophany or a Christ appearance as follows. It's an appearance of a non-physical manifestation of Christ. So traditionally, the term refers to visions of Christ after his ascension, such as like the bright light of the conversion of, the apostle, of Paul the Apostle, like you've read about on the Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9. So God comforts his people by coming to us. God comforts his people by coming to us. We've already said in the fullness of time, not in 536 B.C., but in the very first century, time is reckoned with the coming of Christ. But when he comes, he comforts his people by reminding us that he has heard us. Now, this is fascinating in terms of biblical theology, but if you read in Exodus, which we plan on doing later this summer, Early in Exodus, you find that one of the reasons that God comes to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery is he's heard the people. The, the problems with the people, the pains of the people have reached the heavenly throne room. If you jump all the way to the very other side of your Bible and you read in Revelation, one of the reasons by which the wicked will be judged and when they will be judged 
is because of and when the fullness of the prayers of the saints have reached the heavenly throne room. There is interaction between God's people praying and God's action and timing. And we never see that any more than we see it right here in Daniel chapter 10. Look down again with me, or up if you're looking at the screen. It says that Daniel, after he tells him he's a man greatly loved in verse 11, he tells him to stand upright. He has to be reminded of again and again because God is, is frightful. He's powerful. He has to be reminded again and again not to be afraid, verse 12. And look at what he says in terms of temporality, in terms of time. Fear not, or be not afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your word has been heard. Now, last week I preached this in terms of the first time that you cried out to the Lord, the Lord heard you. And that's true, and it can be derived from biblical text. I think what's being said right here specifically is in reference not simply to the first time Daniel ever uttered a prayer, but to the first day of Daniel's prayer in this particular time of mourning and fasting. And so he prayed, and in terms of temporality, in terms of weeks, there are 21 days, there's three weeks here, and what's being conveyed to him is, even though you did not sense my presence immediately and you were bothered and alone by the river Tigris, which has ancient origins and, and, and meaning in Genesis 2, even though you didn't immediately sense it, I heard you. I think there's some relevance for us today because your prayers matter even if you don't immediately sense something being done about it. Our prayers corporately matter. Never understand God as some kind of a cosmic slot machine like prayers go up and my blessings come down and it's just a one-on-one -on -one just like that and it's going to happen right now. That is a, a kind of, of misunderstanding of Scripture that can actually lead to more of the bad kind of anxiety and not less. What I want to say, though, from Scripture that I think is proper is pray to God in sure and certain hope that He hears your prayers and He knows what's best for you and He will execute what is best in the due time. This text bears that out. So what you're doing when you pray to God humbly humbling yourself, is you are praying God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven for you. Now, why would you pray that way? It's because you have learned by the grace of God to be suspicious of whether or not you know exactly what you need when you need it. When you pray... You ought always appeal to God, not only for the petitions that you want, but also holding out the right to be wrong and to appeal to what He wants for you in His will that is actually better than what you wanted for yourself. Daniel is humbled here. He's humbled himself before the Lord. He was heard from the first day of his prayer, verse 12. And then we we get a sense at the end of verse 12 that I have come because of your words. So there is, there is an evoking nature to our prayers. God listens to us. Then what happens, I think, in God comforting his people by hearing us and also by coming to us, I think there's a comfort within this, this first subset of verses in verses 13 and 14 that God comforts us by making time for us. Now, he made time for Daniel here, but the New Testament bears out that he makes time for us. Look at verses 13 and 14. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, this heavenly messenger says, in the first person, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for three weeks, 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. Forestalled in coming, it seems, because of this, this conflict, this conflict with the kings of Persia. 
Let's just let that hang. God comforts us by coming, hearing, and making time for us. Second point, God commissions his people. He commissions his people. And I think we see that he does this by, by, by muting us at first, but also by purifying our speech and, and helping us speak rightly as his servants. And I think we see that borne out in this very dialogue. Look at verse 15. It says, When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. So Daniel is mute. He, he's not speaking. You may remember the New Testament when um, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Her husband can't speak. He's speechless for a time. Daniel was speechless for a time. David was speechless for a time. In the 39th Psalm of David, it says that I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. He didn't want to sin with his speech. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle. Muzzle mouth is where we get that speech. Psalm 39, so long as the wicked are in my presence, it says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace. I held my peace. So the 39th Psalm is an interesting read with regard to muteness of a servant of the Lord. It was true for David in that particular moment that he might learn to guard his tongue. It is true for Daniel in this particular moment because he's awestruck with a holy and reverential fear of God because it's right to be afraid of God. It isn't bad to be afraid of God. We need more fear of God, not less. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Getting closer to God will invariably lead to a greater fear of God, although there are different types of fear, and I intend to cover that before the sermon ends today. When we look at this text in our second point, after we've already talked about God comforting His people in certain ways, He commissions His people in certain ways, but with a certain progression, First, by, by, by silencing us of all of our foolish talk. I mean, when we come to God, we don't come to Him bringing our agendas and our ideas as superior. We come to Him broken. I don't know how to make myself right. It's kind of like Martin Luther in the 1500s. I can't figure this thing out. And then all of a sudden, he understood Scripture rightly as to be showing a kind of sweet exchange between Christ's righteousness for him and his unrighteousness taken away, that he might be advocated for, like 1 John 2, 2 says, on the day of the Lord by Christ the righteous. That is the gospel. And the gospel is muting to us before it is opening our mouths to speak. Differently, we're not commissioned to speak our words. We're commissioned to speak Christ's words now, aren't we? And, I mean, we need to be reminded as Christians again and again of that fact. Have you spoken in a manner that would be displeasing to Christ this week? Have you spoken with slang terms? Have you spoken in a manner this week that might have misrepresented your wonderful Savior? Well, then we need to be recalibrated in this war now, don't we? And muteness from time to time, sometimes it is the best thing for us to let our words be few. That old saying, you got two ears and one mouth, listen twice as much as you speak. It's good before God to be silent. In fact, one of the spiritual disciplines is silence. I wonder if in our anxious age, if one of the culprits in that anxiety is not having yet fostered the ability and the discipline to be still and to know that He is God. Stillness, quietness, solitude. You have a thousand-page book in your hand, or, or at least in the pew in front of you, by which God has made Himself known. If we are going to know more about how God has made himself known through Christ the Word and through the words of Scripture, we're going to need to be quiet before we talk. Now, the progression for Daniel is no different, although it is simply a moment in a vision. He's mute. And then there is a verse that sort of leads us to think of Isaiah in the purification of the very lips or the mouth of the one that is tasked or commissioned with carrying the Word forward. Look at verse 16. Behold, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. 
touched my lips. It sounds very similar if you want to read later. No time for today to go to the cross-reference. But in Isaiah 6, 5, it says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. So the concept is that Isaiah was ready to deliver divine speech to the people. And here we see Daniel, or we hear of this, he's, 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 uh, he's touched. Second time he's touched in our text in Daniel 10. And one in the likeness of the children of man touched Daniel's lips. And so because of that touching then, he's no longer mute. He opens his mouth and he speaks. And what does he say? He says, Oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I regain no strength. So he's, 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 there's so much going on here with just fear. Uh, his people are going to go through more hard times. The, the, the end, he, what he thinks is the end, is, is really the beginning of a new era of oppression against God's people. And verse 17 says, How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? So calling him Lord is instructive. How can I talk with you? I mean, we, we have a sense which we just say, we just think we say whatever we want to the Lord, right? We're just always talking, always jabbering. I mean, how immature is that? I mean, yeah, God hears our prayers for sure, and He wants us to talk to Him, but the idea that we come to Him flippantly uh, is, is not really the approach. There is a reverential fear of God that then gives freedom to move about the conversation with God. There's a purification that again and again and again and again and again we need as God's commissioned people. And some of you are getting uncomfortable with this God's commissioned people talk. So let me address that for just a moment. Uh, I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that we are a prophet like Daniel or a prophet like the prophetic utterances of John the Apostle or a prophet like Isaiah. I'm not advocating that we are prophets. What we are is believers. We're also not apostles with a big A. I mean, the apostles witnessed Christ and walked with Him in the first century. So what do we have to stake a connection with the prophetic witness? Well, I'm glad that you asked. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21 really helps us here. Helps us a lot. I'm just going to read it to you. It's 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. The apostle Peter is about to, to pass away, he thinks, and he passes on these last words, this last testament to the believers and thus to us. He says, For we did not follow... Cleverly invented stories or cleverly devised myths, depending on which translation you read from. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, that is they were, eyewitnesses of His majesty in the first century A.D. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very verse, voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. That's reflecting on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter was there. Peter, James, and John. For what it's worth, so was Elijah and Moses. It was quite an event, apparently. And the intimation here is we have something even greater than that appearance, as great as that appearance was. He says, we have, in verse 19, the prophetic word. And that's where I'm telling you that you have the prophetic word. More fully confirmed, you have the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, in case you missed the theme of what he's trying to say, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, that is, they wrote, from God as they were carried along by God the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And Second Peter tells us there will be men and women, false teachers and false prophets that come along and try to twist these words, and he's living, leaving them this last testament as to say to them and to say to us, cling to the word, pay attention to the word. You've got the prophetic word. You don't need another mount of transfiguration. He's coming again. Know the word. Preach the word. Proclaim the word. Teach the word. Be students of the Word. When you're in the services together, rally around the Word. Set and listen to the Word taught for an extended period of time. Value the Word. Study the Word in your homes. Study the Word on your own. Impress it upon your children. So God commissions His people. He quiets us at first. Purifies our speech. Really ongoingly through prayers of confession. But He commissions us to share true truth 
words from him that he has given us, that is, the Scriptures. So God not only comforts us, but he commissions us. And then thirdly and finally, he actively contends for us. Actively contends for us. And we see this contention, or contending rather, for his people in his emboldening of us, his writing for us, and his reminding us of that which he's done. So let's see how he contends for his people through emboldening us by looking at verse 18 and then 19. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me. It's the third time he's touched Daniel. So there's a sensory aspect to this text, isn't there? Sight, smell, touch, taste, etc. He touched me. He strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved. Love and fear going together again here, right? Oh, man, greatly loved fear. Love, fear, love, fear, love, fear, love, fear. As if the message is trying to convey to you that it goes together. Don't be afraid. You're loved. Be very afraid if you're not loved. How do we know that we're loved? God so loved his world, he sent his son. Not to condemn us, but to save us. What is our part in that? Believing. Believing in the son. Simple yet profound. There's one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. I wonder if this morning, if you would enter into the community of people that God contends for by simply believing in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you trust Him today? I would prevail upon you to do it, not just based on sound wisdom, but because without Him you have no hope of life. You must trust Christ. You must trust Christ. Then we can begin to grapple with how he contends for us, what he means for us, such as what we're talking about in this third point today. God contends for his people, be among his people through faith. He contends for us through emboldening us. Look at uh, verse 19 further. After fear not, he says, peace be with you. That's a phrase that reminds me a lot of John 20. Some of you Bible students that'll that'll zing with you when you think about the shalom of God and you think about Jesus' words post-resurrection to his people. He has to encourage them. In fact, he breathes on them. Daniel's got no breath here. But the apostles were breathed on to receive the Spirit, and the New Testament talks about it. And in the earliest appearances of Jesus after his resurrection to his followers, he comforts them with the words, peace be with you. And here we have the heavenly messenger comforting Daniel with the words, peace be with you. And then he goes back to an old phrase, be strong and courageous. Now, where have we heard that before? Joshua chapter 1 records Moses passing on the commissioning to Joshua to take the promised land. And when he passes it along, he says, be strong and courageous. So God contends with his people by emboldening them. And I want to talk about this strength and courage by looking at a couple of key verses. Jude 9 says, talking of the archangel Michael contending for God's people, Israel, he says, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, with regard to the archangel Michael, now let's consider not only contending, but also let's go back and consider Moses. Joshua 1, 7-9 says, only in similar language, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law 
that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, in other words, stay with it, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success, that is, in accomplishing the Lord's will to take the promised land. And then he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And what does he have to remind him of as well? Don't be scared. Why? Because God's scary. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It all starts with being afraid of Him again and again, and certainly for the very first time. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God will is with you wherever you go. Much like the commissioning that we have in the New Covenant, the Lord says, and this is how Matthew ends, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So is He with us, or is He not? He is with us. And so He's not only comforted us, and not only commissioned us, but He's actively contending for us. I can't think of a greater contention than Christ Himself dying on a cross to atone for our sins. Destroying any plausible hope that evil had of overcoming faith. Making faith our victory because of Christ's finished work on the cross. That's worthy of getting together about at least once a week, wouldn't you say? (laughs) I mean, what He's done for us, for joy and fear. You start to see, don't you see? Fear and joy aren't antithetical. With God, they go together. And they always will. I mean, when you're in heaven, are you suddenly going to stop being afraid of God? No. In fact, it's a spiritual thing to be afraid of God. And Joshua needed to be strong at Jericho. And when Joshua was at Jericho, this is in Joshua 5, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And Joshua 5.15 says, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for your place you're standing is holy. And he took his sandals off, saying that even the most empowered among men are nothing compared to our God and His army. Remember what Jesus said when He was in Gethsemane and thereafter. Remember, put your sword away. Why? Because He could, he could call legions of angels to come if he, just, if he just said it. And He didn't do it. But why? Because power is not always expressed in immediate triumph. Sometimes we triumph through restraint. Certainly Christ did on the cross, now didn't he? So I don't know why he tarries in his return. I can tell you his timing will be perfect. Same as I wouldn't have known if I'd have been standing there with the other apostles in the first century, why he let them take him. But looking back, don't you see how perfect it was? The goodness of Friday, as bad as it feels, because of what had to be done for our sins. God is ever contending for His people by emboldening us in a parallel way as He did Joshua. He gives us this inscribed truth, too. He writes to us. You can think of the Bible in some sense as God's letter of love to us, to not leave us without a word from Him. So he writes to us, this truth is described as inscribed truth in places in the Bible, truth inscribed or truth written. And there is some book of true truth about the unfolding of history that we aren't privy to that's described as inscribed in verse 21. If you look at Daniel 10, 21, you can can see that. 
I tell you what is inscribed, inscribed that is in the book of truth. This says, there's none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. Michael, your prince. So Prince Michael, the only angel mentioned by name in the Bible other than the messenger Gabriel, appears in another apocalyptic vision that is revelation to John the Apostle for us. So just as Daniel was old in 536 B.C., so John the Apostle is old in 90 A.D. when he received the vision and peered into heaven to see what was behind the veil and understand a little bit more about what was going on in the heavenlies and the battle that was being waged there as well. And we can read about this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. And so, so why don't we? It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael, the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word, the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Don't you see where God is contending for you? He's ever acting on behalf of his people, even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when immediate triumph isn't apparent, even when we're mute for a time, God not only comforts us and commissions us, He's contending for His purposes, and His purposes are to set His affection on His people, which is we the believers. We are the people. A heavenly citizenship. I'm encouraged by what Don Carson wrote about this text. He wrote the following about God contending for His people, and particularly about reminding us of how he contends for his people. You might remember I read chapter 11, verse 1 and 2a in the scripture reading this morning, and it talks about how God was instrumental in moving the king of Persia to allow God's people to go back. And now, a couple years later, he's instrumental in continuing to motivate God's people and to move God's people toward action, even if it seems slow and even if some rebel. So Don Carson writes this, The heavenly messenger in Daniel 12 is more radiant than Gabriel and mightier than Michael. And he has the power to strengthen Daniel. Far from being exhilarated by the experience Daniel has that's recorded in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is so drained of energy and even of speech and consciousness that three times he must be revived by the visitor. The three-week delay unveils conflict in the heavenlies. The prince of the Persian kingdom is some angelic being connected with Persia, as similar for Greece, Daniel 10.20 says. Michael is your people's prince. The hierarchy of angelic beings is not governed by the relationships of their earthly counterparts. As there is a war between good and evil on earth, though, so there is a war in heaven. He writes, in the same way that observing earthly people and powers might lead the unwary to conclude that God is not really in control, so also this delay in the movements of angels has caused the unwary to conclude that God is not really in control in heaven either, since clearly there are many contingencies of which we are not normally aware. We get a little glimpse behind the veil here, but we're not normally aware. And so he writes, helpfully, so listen. But that is to draw a conclusion that Scripture flatly rules out of order. We don't have to go outside of Daniel to commend this truth to you. For Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson well. God, Daniel 4.35 says, does as he pleases with the powers in heaven and with the peoples of the earth. There is a terrible war going on, but this takes place under God's sovereignty in its affirmation of God's user Dominion, of the, if you look at the text in Daniel chapter 4, verse, 4, verse 35, we see in its affirmation of God's dominion the following. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. No one can hold back God's hand. So there is space for conflict and resolve and perseverance, but also a faith and utter total confidence 
that God will finish what he has started in you and through you and for his people. John Bunyan was a great theologian in regard to this subject matter. And Joel Beakey's done a great service to us to try to bring forward his writings on a healthy fear of God. I'll give you one little sampling from his writings to kind of sum up this sermon today. He wrote, In contrast to ungodly fear and the fear of damnation, Bunyan said there's a third kind of fear, which is not ungodly fear or the fear of damnation. He said this third kind of fear is a godly and it's essential for salvation. It is a treasure given by God to his children, to us. It's a fountain of life and wisdom. Fallen mankind does not have a spark of this, un- of this godly fear, for they're ungodly. But God gives this kind of fear to his chosen ones as a fruit of his covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. This covenant is God's eternal will in which he set the price of salvation as Christ's blood, the promise of salvation as the gift of eternal life, and the people of salvation as those chosen by God. John Bunyan and the grace of fearing God says it all in the title. Fearing God is part of grace. So God contends by emboldening and writing and reminding us of what he's already done in history, ensuring certain hope that he will bring it to an end. God not only comforts but commissions and not only commissions, but also contends for we, his people. And this matters for the boys and girls in my hearing. It matters for the men and women in my hearing. Those of you that are younger, as well as those of you that are, that are older, those that are middle-aged parents and singles, rich and poor, unemployed and employed, those of you that are more motivated and those of you that are more thoughtfully concerned, every kind of people this matters. Asians and Africans and Central Americans and even Mount, Vernon, Mount Vernonians here too. It matters to you that that God is at work among us so that you can know that you're loved even through embracing phobia of Him, fear of Him. Because you're not, as a believer, subject to damnation. And you're not, as a believer, having an ungodly fear unless you've been poorly taught. And then we need to fix that. But it is a kind of fear that throws you into deeper and deeper depths of his speech for you, even if you have to be quiet long enough to hear it and ingest it. And you need to know that God is at work for you right now. Did you know that Christ ever lives to make intercession for you? Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 and 26 says this. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that good? He ever lives. He always lives to make intercession for you. What a wonderful, wonderful Christ. Let's reach out to him, shall we? Let's do it in prayer. First through silence, and then I'll utter a prayer before our benediction. Let's bow our heads and consider God might be leading us to as a result of this text today.